While we're still standing, let's turn to the book of Revelation again this evening and read um, the first three verses. Chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And he goes on to say, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. <clears throat> May God grant us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to us here tonight. You can be seated, please. We've been looking at this book of Revelation the last few times that I've spoke. Not so much to try to give a verse-by-verse exposition of the book. Um, I couldn't do that. Uh, It's a very difficult book. But to give some help in understanding how we should approach the book in our reading of it. We said that this is apocalyptic literature uh, and of course it contains much symbolism. This type of literature, this apocalyptic literature was common in the first century, centuries, a few centuries before and after the first century, but it is not very common to us And so it's kind of hard for us to know how to read it. Uh, Plus, a lot of the symbolism would have been known to the the first century Christians that we don't understand so well. So it makes it a difficult book. Now, the name itself, apocalyptic, comes from a Greek word that means to uncover, to disclose, to reveal. So God's intention was not to conceal his truth from us when this was written, but to reveal truth to us. For the biblical writers, this meant that there was a divine unveiling taking place, God pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on his work in the world and showing his followers how to understand what was going on because it was a tremendous time of persecution and difficulty. And the point that I wanted to make last time, and actually the last two times, that is that this apocalyptic book is a special kind of literature that needs to be interpreted in a special way. If we read this imagery that's here in an overly literal way, we'll end up thinking foolish thoughts or even very unbiblical, making very unbiblical interpretations. 
the key to proper interpretation of this book is to have some understanding of the Old Testament references, which there are so many in a, over 351 commentary said, uh, in books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah, parts of Isaiah and other uh, places scattered uh, throughout the Old Testament. So to know something about some of those uh, references that John took the imagery from, and plus to understand something of the cultural context that the first century readers would have had in, in, uh, as they approached this book. Uh, I would say this, we normally think of this as a book of prophecy, and though there is prof- prophecy in the book, <clears throat> um, it's actually as much pastoral as it is uh, prophetically predictive. In other words, it was written to help those Christians in the first century, and it was written in such a way that it will help Christians down through the centuries. It was written, as I said, in a time of great tribulation to provide confidence in God's victory, both for the immediate audience that was reading it and for those who would follow. In fact, I, I think it was written in this apocalyptic style, at least partly so that the great general truths uh, that are presented could help Christians down through the ages down through the centuries. The book of Revelation was not given so that Christians in every age could have a detailed account of God's plan for the future. That, by that I mean where and when and how everything was going to happen, how history would unfold. There is throughout the book a, a general pattern of tribulation and then exhortations to trust God in the midst of that tribulation and then the reality that God's going to bring judgment upon this evil world, upon all evil, and then God's ultimate triumph through Christ and there being a new heaven and a new earth uh, in which righteousness dwells. That pattern comes up over and over uh, in the book. Uh, And those are themes that uh, all Christians need to dwell on uh, in, in whatever age they're in. So they're repeated many times. But that's different from saying that if we could just decode this book, we could predict the details of history and how the end of the world is going to unfold. That's a a far different thing. That's the way it's approached sometimes, but that's not God's intention. And sadly, Bible prophecy speculators have been wrong so often about their predictions that it's given much ammunition to those who would ridicule the Bible and Christianity. So we must be very careful as we deal with this book. The last time I tried to examine four or present four basic views or ways that this book can be interpreted. I'll just repeat them here very quickly. First of all, the futurist view which says that the book is basically a presentation of what will happen in the end times. That's the the one that's the most common today uh, that's making most of the headlines in terms of movies and books and things. And so it's the most well-known view. On the other end of the spectrum is the preterist view, 
which means that the book is basically dealing with what is past for us. It wasn't past for the people that were reading it right then in the first century. It was was soon to come. That's what he says here. For the time is near. Uh, So it was somewhat future, but not far distant future. But uh, anyway, the, the, the preterist would say that it's basically dealing in what is past for us. For us, uh, In this uh, view, the book is a symbolic account of first century, the first century Christian struggles uh, with Jewish opposition and Roman persecution. John was writing to the seven churches, exhorting them to look to Christ in these difficult times. He would soon bring apostate Jewish false worship to an end and also bring down the mighty Roman Empire. So that's the preterist. And the historicist, if I say that right, it's kind of a hard word, historicist, uh, which is basically saying that the book is a kind of a road map of all of world history. Uh, The meaning of the symbols is to be found in the events of human history especially church history. So you, you take the book and then you go through history and you say, well, this must be Muhammad here and this must be Napoleon Bonaparte here and uh, here's Adolf Hitler. Uh, that would be that approach. Some, some people who take this av- approach even see the seven churches addressed in Revelation as symbolic of different phases of Christianity from the time of John till the second coming of Christ. In general, we see the whole book as a symbolic account of the entire scope of world history. The last view we mentioned is the idealist position, which is somewhat similar to the, the, the last one, in that those who hold this view say that the book is presenting eternal principles that were rooted in the first century church but contains a message for Christians throughout all of church history. So there's there's, there's lessons and teachings and truths there for Christians for all time, even though it was written mainly to the first century Christians. The symbols can refer to specific people or events in the first century, but it is also giving Christians abiding spiritual principles which apply to all human experience down through history. So those are the four basic views. And as I said last time, those positions have been embraced by true Christians and should um, they should be um, looked at as things that we can think about, debate, you know, honest, there's room for honest debate and even disagreement on, on how some of these things are viewed. And I actually think that a combination of those views uh, is really what is what is the most helpful way to approach this book of Revelation. And in fact, that's what I'll be doing this evening. Uh, I think you'll notice that as we go on. So, we ended last time by showing that this preterist position does give us some insight into the identity of the beast and his number, 666. First century Christians would have readily identified Nero as the beast John was writing about. 
I'm not going to go back to uh, why that would be if you didn't get that last time. I, eventually, uh, the message will be up on on uh, our uh, site, so uh, you can listen back into that. But that I would say, just say that I'm I'm convinced that first century Christians, when they I read about the beast and the mark of the beast in 666. They would have been thinking about Nero. Uh, so I'd like to go on from there this evening and share a few thoughts related to this mark of the beast because that's another thing that's very common in our uh, discussions or uh, in the literature that's around today. Uh, so let's, uh, let's turn to Revelation 13 and read a little of this section again that deals with the beast. <clears throat> we'll start with verse 16, although really it wouldn't... You, to get the flow, you'd have to start at verse 1 of chapter 13, but let's just cut in here at verse 16. <clears throat> and he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Note especially in verse 17, no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, if you've read uh, much of the current uh, literature related to um, the book of Revelation, you know that there is quite a bit of speculation uh, related to this mark of the beast, especially in our so-called computer age, <clears throat> because we have all these microchips and barcodes. So uh, you have people saying that uh, this mark of the beast actually is some kind of a microchip inserted under the skin on your hand or in your forehead. And then, of course, you can the barcodes, they, they can be used to track your every purchase you're buying and you're selling. Uh, so, I think I can say for sure that neither John nor his first century readers had that in mind. <laughs> it's true that Nero's image was on many of the coins of that time. And that's not uncommon because ruthless uh, tyrants and dictators like their image displayed everywhere. Uh, all you have to do is think of Mao or Hitler or Stalin and realize that that was, that was a characteristic and probably always will be of tyrants and dictators. They like their image all around. But how are we to understand the name of the beast or the number of the beast's name as a mark on the hand or the forehead of his subjects? I think the answer is that John is not speaking of a literal external mark. 
Rather, he's saying that by a person's worldview, what is present in their mind, and by a person's actions, what he does with his hand, he identifies with the beast. It is a person's thoughts and actions that identify him as a follower of Nero or not. As one writer put it, this mark is impressed on the forehead or the right hand. The forehead symbolizes the mind, the thought life, the philosophy of a person. The right hand indicates his deeds, his action, his trade, what he does, and so forth. So, another, in other words, don't think about a, a physical external mark when you, when you read this. Again, it's symbolic language. Moreover, biblically, a name represents one's character. So he's talking about having the name on the forehead or the number of the name. A name represents a person's character. Even God's various names speak of different aspects of his character. And also that's why God often changes the name of a person when they become a Christian because their character changes. So he changes their name. And also you see in the scriptures that parents are told what to name their unborn children because God was going to use that name in relationship to what the person's character was going to be what attributes were going to be there in that person's life. So, what's that mean? That means to have Nero's name on your forehead and hand means his anti-God character is what characterizes your thoughts and your actions. I haven't lost anybody, have I? On the hand and the forehead, that name speaks of a character that's been imprinted there, you might say, in the mind, in the heart, and then out in the actions. Another writer puts it this way. He says, The forehead and the hands are Old Testament symbols of a person's beliefs and behavior. There it is, beliefs and behavior. <clears throat> and uh, we could look up some scriptures on that. Uh, Let's let's look at one anyway. Exodus thirteen nine. <clears throat> There's a number of these, but we'll just look at one here. Exodus thirteen nine. <clears throat> Speaking of some of the um, things that God told His people to observe when they enter the land, it says this, And you shall tell your sons on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, that they observed some of these ceremonies. And then he says this, And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So there's the, the hand and the forehead. Um, <clears throat> you could look up some others on this. Deuteronomy 6, 8 would be another one. Uh, and Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. In other words, what you believe 
in how you behave. This is, I think, the, the essence of what's coming across <clears throat> there in the book of Revelation, that we, uh, this mark of the beast. What you believe and how you behave mark you as either belonging to God or belonging to Satan. <clears throat> the notion that the mark of the beast is Sunday worship or a social security card number or a silicon uh, microchip, really, you're not going to get that out of the Bible. But the fact that it shows forth, not from an external thing, but from your heart, from your mind, and your actions, that's, I think, what... Um, John was aiming at. More importantly than the mark of the beast is that God's people are marked this way also. This is what's really significant. So let's read on in Revelation 14. <clears throat> right after, I think this is significant. You've got to remember these chapter divisions aren't here, aren't there in the, uh, the, uh, the way God had these uh, truths written originally. So he's, talk, he's just got through talking about this mark, the name of the beast or the number of the beast on the forehead. And then he, go, and he, then he says this, And I looked, and behold, the, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their forehead. You're going to have one or the other written on your forehead, you see. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. And no one, was, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. So, amazing, I think, you have this contrast between the mark on the forehead of those who follow the beast and the mark on the forehead of those who follow the Lamb. <clears throat> Uh, these people, these followers of the Lamb, have the character of Christ impressed upon their mind. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes and they sing His praises, a song that no one else knows except those, except those 144,000. So that brings up the next question. Who are the 144,000? Well, I believe that that number represents true Israel, his people, God's people from both the Old and New Testament times. Again, it's a symbolic number. We talked about that the first time I spoke on this, that the numbers in, in the book of Revelation many times are very symbolic. It's a, that number is a symbolic number representing the perfect, purified, perfected bride of Christ who were sealed by God for the day of redemption. Let's look at some other verses on this. But first of all, <clears throat> we'll look at some others in, in the book of Revelation. But first of all, let's just turn back as an example of what we're talking about, again, to the Old Testament. 
which uh, the event we're looking at happened six centuries before the time of Christ. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Here's a situation that the uh, people of God found themselves in. By and large, the nation, Jerusalem, as a city, had turned away from God. They'd filled the cities with abominations. God was bringing judgment upon the nation, and specifically related to the city here of Jerusalem. But before he brings the judgment, he has a man go through probably an angel, in white linen and mark the people of God on their forehead. Uh, a man clothed in linen putting a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things done in Jerusalem. And this is just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. So... Uh, well, just one verse here. You have to read the whole account sometime, beginning at verse 1 again. We just don't have time to read through all the sections here. But Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Well, what really happened then was Babylon came in and did the striking and the killing. But before that happened, God puts the mark on the forehead. <clears throat> Judgment was about to fall and God says, Mark my true followers on the forehead before it does. <clears throat> this is the imagery used for the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. Let's look at it in another place. Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 7, and we'll read the verses <clears throat> 1 through 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom was granted to harm the earth and the sea. See, judgment was just, just uh, around the corner. <clears throat> to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until I have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So there's this sealing on the forehead. And then verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he mentions these various tribes that each have 12,000 Sealed. <clears throat> so I believe that this uh, 
this 144,000 here is the same as the 144,000 in, in Revelation 14. And again, you see the situation. Before God sends judgment, he secures his people with a seal on their forehead. I would also say that I think that this 144,000 is, is also the same people he's referring to in the next verses, uh, 9 through 14. Let's just read those. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, this 144,000, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders <clears throat> and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, Who are who?" These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And he said, My Lord, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. So, <clears throat> I think all of these... Uh, groups that we're talking about here, the 144,000 in, in Revelation 14, 144,000 here in, in chapter 7, and this great multitude uh, are the same. They all have this seal on the forehead. That seal here that he talks about is the same as the name that's on the forehead of those in chapter 14. And you might question why I say this is... Uh, all of God's people from the Old and New Testament, especially since he goes through and names all these tribes. Well, <clears throat> um, though he writes of 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, I believe he's speaking of spiritual Israel and the entire church from both the Old and New Testament periods. The 144,000, again, is a symbolic number. It indicates completeness the fullness of God's people for, for all time. And it has nothing to do with race. 144,000 has nothing to do with race. It has uh, everything to do with relationship. If you've been sealed by God, if you have the name of Christ on your forehead, that's what matters, not whether you're a Jew ethnic Jew or not. Now I'm going to try to establish this a little bit more here. The number 144,000 most likely represents the 12 apostles of the Lamb multiplied by the 12 tribes of Israel, which is 144, times 1,000. And again, that's to show completeness and fullness. Uh, often in the New Testament you see this, this pattern of referring to the community of faith, whether it's Jew or Gentile, with Jewish designations, that is, spiritual Israel. For instance, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's descendants. That's the criteria. If you're going to be a true Jew, you have to belong to Christ. First uh, Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once not a people. You weren't part of this Jewish nation, but now you are. Uh, but now you are the people of God. Well, let me show you a few verses here that I think clearly show that this 144,000 refers to the fullness of God's people uh, from both uh, the Old and New Testament. Let's turn again to, in the book of Revelation to some of the final chapters uh, referring to the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Let's turn to Revelation 21. Now, I'm throwing a bunch of things at you here, and you're going to have to think about them, you know, reread some of this, uh, and really analyze if you think my understanding of the symbolism here is correct. But look at uh, Revelation 21, 9 through 14. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Of course, the bride is God's people, the church, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in spirit, in the spirit, to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. And it had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which were those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. So here's this new Jerusalem with gates would have the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three great gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you have the Old and New Testament saints being re represented in this new Jerusalem, you see. Twelve, twelve, 144. And then to show the completeness of it... Uh, you take that times a thousand. Uh, so now skip over because this same people that he's talking about here in this section, he goes on to say this in chapter 22, 3 through 5. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And here's the, here's the thing. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Every one of those 144,000, everyone that's part of this new Jerusalem, everyone that's the bride of Christ from the Old or New Testament times, have that name on their foreheads. That name we've been talking about all along through these scriptures. <clears throat> uh, the church is made up of these sealed ones, these ones with his name on their forehead, 
those who have been redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that includes the Jewish nation. One other verse. Now we got go clear back to the beginning of the book of Revelation when John's still speaking, or actually Christ is speaking, to the seven churches. Look at uh, chapter 3. And verse, uh, well, we'll begin at verse 12, 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Just a little aside here. God is not concerned about physical temples because his people are his temple. And uh, all this stuff about rebuilding the temple is a big mistake. God's already rebuilt the temple. It's right here, part of it, tonight. Well, anyway, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. There's that name on the forehead again. And I, I, I say that that's for every true believer. That wasn't just the church at Philadelphia. Uh, it's not just true for the overcomers there at Philadelphia. That's, that's a reality for all of believers. If you are a Christian here tonight, you're part of this 144,000. You're part of this great multitude who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So, what I'm doing here, you see, I'm combining some of these positions that we've talked about. The preterist position, the idealist, who says there's things here, symbolic things for us down through all of the church age. Uh, some of, some of the futurist, we're talking about things here when we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We're certainly talking about something in the future yet. So it's a combination of those things. So I want to I close by just making the application here for us tonight. Uh, Though the beast whose number is 666 is not around anymore. That's true. But Nero-like leaders empowered by the dragon, Satan, still make war on the saints. We heard a little bit about that earlier here, just in the situation in China. Uh, The Christians... Christian life always involves some degree of conflict. That's why each of the letters of the seven churches all say, to him who overcomes. You're going to have things you're going to have to overcome to follow the Lamb in whatever land you live in. God's people will suffer persecution, tribulation, 
most certainly not as severe as what took place under Nero and the imperial cult that followed afterwards. Uh, I mean, just think of it. Just one example. Christians being used as human torches to light Nero's garden. Again, uh, most not in that difficult of a situation, but often great tribulation comes nonetheless. Throughout church history, Christians have been like sheep to the slaughter. Sheep to be slaughtered. That's, that's a reality. That's what Paul said back in Romans. But he also said this. He said, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. There's that overcoming, you see, that him who overcomes. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, really in one way, that's the message of the book of Revelation. Right there. That's some of the unveiling. See, these people, it look, here, here's a few Christians, few weak, uh, powerless Christians in terms of power that the world would exercise, coming up against the Jewish false religion and the Roman Empire. How is that, how are they going to stand? Paul says, well, we'll over, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. Every one of the sealed 144,000 who have the Lord's name written on their forehead, the true bride of Christ, will be part of that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's, that's the church. Both believers from the Old and New Testament dispensations. And those people are the ones who gladly say, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, the question, I think, for us, for each of us here tonight, is this. Whose name's on your forehead? That's the question. Is it the beast or the lamb? Is it man's number that's written there, 666? Or is it God's name? Have you been sealed by God? Has He done something in your heart and mind that works out in your actions? If he has, you can say, let the wind blow. 
that those four angels that hold back the judgment let it loose because ultimately there's no harm that's going to be done to God's people. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.